Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff's a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name's Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Jason. And, uh, and it's not just us today. No, we have a, a very special guest. Uh, we're joined by Eric Berger, the senior space editor at Ars Technica. He's got a new book coming out March 2nd. Uh, it has an excellent title. It's titled Liftoff, so we, we endorse it. fully back that. Uh, Eric, thanks for hanging out today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and the check is in the mail for letting me use the uh, title for the book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good. I saw the title, and I was like, okay, well, the synergy here is uh, perfect. And uh, Stephen and I both have read the book. You got us advanced copies, which is very nice. It's a really good book. Obviously, everybody who listens to Liftoff should rush out and pre-order Liftoff by Eric Berger to to read. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But first, we should probably get through some of the news. There's so much going on. Eric, when we started this podcast like five years ago, we thought like, well, can we really talk about space uh, for you know every couple of weeks? Is there really that much going on? And the answer is, oh my God, there's, as you know, so much going on. Yeah, I left a, I left a job at the Houston Chronicle about five years ago to cover space full time for Ars Technica. For the first couple of months, I wondered, well, is there going to be enough for me to write about? <laughs> and it just it just keeps accelerating because you've got all of the things that NASA is doing, and that's remained pretty constant. But you've got all of this commercial activity um, by you know companies across the board in the United States, and it just there just is more and more private money flowing into space, and not just launch. And so there's all kinds of interesting things happening in the commercial sector. And then if you look across internationally too, you know Europe, Japan, China are all doing really interesting work in space and and only increasing their output. So it's yeah, it's a lot to keep track of, and it's a, I, I think it's more exciting now than it probably was even in the 1960s, just in terms of all of the different things that are happening and all of the potential out there for what could be coming. When we started this, we would we would mix in a bunch of explainer episodes where we would talk about, you know, about the planets and the moons and stuff like that. Because it was like, well, you know, there's a slow pace of news and then we'll also talk about various things. We haven't done one of those explainers. We do some Apollo 50th anniversary things. But we haven't done a regular explainer episode in ages because, you know, there's never a slow news week in space right now for the last like four or five years. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's difficult for me to find a week to take off. <laughs> I bet. I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, well. so for this last week, uh, Mars Perseverance landed, <laughs> and we got the initial download on Monday, which was spectacular. We got HD footage of the parachute deploy, of the landing, even the sort of sky crane waving goodbye as it zipped off, um, and even the first sound recorded on Mars because I got a microphone up there. And as a tech guy, it struck me that one of the big advances, and, and this comes into like uh, CubeSats and things like that too, and NanoRacks stuff. I remember when I went to the last uh, shuttle launch, I talked to somebody who was there for NanoRacks. And the idea that smartphone, the smartphone revolution has driven like high quality, low power consumption technology. And you see it in places like, for example, all these cameras that they said uh, yesterday at, at the JPL press conference on Perseverance. You know, a lot of these are just kind of space hardened a little bit, but like they're consumer cameras. They're basically smartphone tech that has been repurposed to give us HD views of a landing of a spaceship on Mars. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, they're ruggedized cameras and they're the rovers running on a Linux operating system. And they said yesterday during the news conference that there's an open source image compressor basically to get this back to earth. You, you know, they took 23,000 images on the way down. <laughs> you know, you can't do that with digital storage. I don't think even five, right. five years ago. So yeah, the technology is really driving some of this miniaturization, which of course mass is so incredibly valuable, even in low Earth orbit, but all the way on the surface of Mars. I mean, the amount of propellant and energy needed to get a kilogram from Earth to the surface of Mars is enormous. So it's it's every little bit helps. And that's a that's it's just it's what a, an accomplishment. It's almost routine. I have to remind myself, landing on Mars, if I remember the nineties, right? Like landing on Mars used to be brutally hard and the, nasa has just had this incredible run of success with these mars rovers it's it's been you know it's nerve-wracking every time but it is it is such an accomplishment to get down there not not to mention taking hd video on the way down it still is brutally hard you know europe has tried a couple of times to put landers down on the surface of mars and has, has been unsuccessful and you know it's going to be super interesting 
I think the current time frame now is June for Tianwen, the Chinese mission to Mars to attempt a landing. It's it's rather aggressive and impressive for them that their first mission to Mars is not just an orbiter, but also a lander and a rover. And if they're able to successfully put that Tianwen spacecraft on the surface of Mars and have it survive, make a soft landing, that will be that will be a real milestone because no one other than the United States has ever done that. It's been interesting to me. This is definitely one of those times where covering the space industry and like normal everyday life have collided where I have like friends and family members like, oh my gosh, I saw that clip on YouTube of the rover. Like that was that real, you know, asking questions about it. I think NASA and JPL have done a good job at really the sort of the the media side of it this time and getting people engaged. And like they always have the hype machine, you know, they they fire up. But I think this video really connected with a lot of people because it's I mean, I was watching and have to remind myself like this actually happened on another planet. It's it's amazing. I think it's the most publicly catching thing that NASA has done since the New Horizon flyby of Pluto. Yeah. Um, with the, the pictures from that, which were absolutely remarkable as well. We talk a lot about the fact that, you know, PR is a part of the business. Politics is a part of the business. This is all kind of part, getting the public engaged. It's always been part of the business. And they have done a good job. And, and you know, there are lots of good scientific reasons, given all of the issues with parachutes, to get that upward camera showing parachute deploy on Perseverance. But also... It's great for public engagement. And so I like that they're able to mix their needs. And also just it's such a powerful way to reach the public with nice HD video. Like the last one, it was a series of snaps, basically. And this time it's like, no, now it's HD video. And and the parachute is like 120 frames a second or something like that. It's amazing. Yeah, the parachute was the parachute was awesome to see that deploy because that whole sequence of exploding out the back and and um, unfurling was 1.7 seconds. You're absolutely right. I mean, they have come to realize at NASA that they could talk about science all day, and a large proportion of the public's eyes are going to glaze over and they're going to turn away or just not pay attention in the first place. But if you can show pictures of something novel, um, like sort of landing on the surface of Mars or new spacecraft, that is the kind of stuff that does get much wider uptake. And, it, you know, it, um, Adam Steltzner, who created the Sky Crane about 15 years ago, was talking the other day about this, um, you know, how we have these iconic images that, like, really change our perception, right? The, the footprint on the moon, um, Earthrise from the surface of the moon, um, the New Horizons picture of Pluto, um, you know, up-close pictures of Jupiter's moons. But now I think that picture of Perseverance that actually was released Friday sort of descending from the the bridles and the cables from the sky crane down to the surface of Mars. You know, I think that's a historic picture as well that that really sort of brings home the challenge of landing on Mars and, and kind of how epic that achievement is. I think a lot of that sort of awareness of, hey, we've got to talk to the public differently than we used to. I mean, I can't help but think, I think most people would think that a lot of that is thanks to companies like SpaceX, which has been doing live streams for years now. You even see like ULA and others doing them now. And uh, it's that's even carried over to the Starship program. As we speak this week, at some point, there's going to be, uh, it looks like a static fire of SN10 after 8 and 9 flew and then had their, <laughs> we want to call them rough landings? I don't know, <laughs> rapid uh, unscheduled disassembly. Yeah, I read demise. Look, they landed. They landed just a little harder than you want, and then they exploded. <laughs> they were on the ground, then they were in pieces. There was a bit of hubbub around the uh, some previous flights about the FAA's launch license that SpaceX has, and Elon got upset on Twitter about it. It seems like all of that's behind them now. There was some legitimate concerns about that. I mean, basically what happened was... You know, the, the SpaceX had submitted some paperwork showing an exclusion zone where, you know, where they were going to keep things out of because there was a potential for falling rocket parts and explosions in that area. And uh, SpaceX went ahead and launched SN8 without final approval for that. And that's that's not good, right? That's, that's a pretty big no-no. And so, you know, as they got closer to flying SN9s about six weeks later, 
the FAA was giving them some stick and not approving their final application for that launch because I think they wanted to sort of complete an investigation into what happened to SN8 and then make sure that the same thing that happened didn't happen again with SN9. And Elon got upset. And it was an interesting showdown for a couple of days because they prepared the rocket for launch. On one occasion, they even fueled it and they sat there sort of like almost trying to have a showdown with the FAA <laughs> saying we're ready to go. And the only thing that's holding us up is your piece of paper, which we don't think is really very important. Um, but we're going to, you know, we're going to wait for it. And to the FAA's credit and, and to that of SpaceX as well, they eventually worked it out over the weekend and were able to fly SN9. And, you know, after the failure of SN9, the FAA had to come in again and kind of do an investigation just to see, well, what went wrong? Is this going to happen again? And do we need to revise the safety rules? And they did that like in a matter of a couple of weeks. It was really fast. And, F and SpaceX already has their FAA permit to fly SN10 on a test flight. So I'm going to have to say SpaceX is a little more in the wrong on that than the FAA was. Yeah, I think clearly like playing chicken with the FAA, like fueling it up. It's I, I can think about, you know, when my kids were toddlers and sometimes they like they want to stand off with you. It's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> I have all the power here, but uh, you're going to lose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's only going to end one way for you, kid. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Musk was so bellicose about it. And, and then you look at it later and you realize, you know, he was kind of throwing a tantrum because it was his fault. But now he wanted to be forgiven so that he could launch. And like nobody I, I get it. Like bureaucracy. It's a really easy to say, look, we're trying to break bureaucracy here at SpaceX. And so why are you holding us back? But I, I think I because you covered this really well. I think one of the things that you pointed out is the FAA has actually been pretty responsive to what SpaceX is doing. It's not like they're holding them down and saying, you know, stop launching things that they've been they've been pretty good. But that SpaceX maybe pushed them too far by just ignoring them. You probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of bureaucracy involved in launch licensing procedures. And, you know, if we are going to get to the point where SpaceX is going to launch, you know, every couple of days and Blue Origin, ULA and all these other companies, Rocket Lab going to launch for the United States, Firefly, Relativity, on and on and on. You know, there there does need to be better licensing. The FAA is working on that. It's streamlined some of its rules. You know, that's that's just that's Elon being Elon. If if he thinks he's right about something and and he's being wrong, he his his first instinct is to put his head down and attack. That's what he did. Uh, just looking at the crystal ball for a minute, where do you think that the Starship cadence is going? You know, I, so they let's say they land, right? Let's say SN10 actually lands. How quickly, you know, where do they go from here, I guess, is what I'm saying. Once they get it so that they can take it off and, and, and land, you know, it's a second stage. Where, where does this project go from here? Like, what could people expect in the next year from what they're doing down in Texas? So they're they're doing a couple of things. First of all, they're going to jump to a more advanced vehicle. They're going to jump from SN10, um, or they're going to do SN11 then, and then they'll jump to SN15. I think I think they may repeat the flight again to a similar altitude of ten or twelve and a half kilometers, just to sort of make sure they understand everything. And then they may go higher, you know, forty or fifty kilometers, um, and come back. And then that'll probably be it for the Starship testing, then they're going to need to, to finalize the booster. And so this is the first stage, 20, 25 engines, uh, Raptor engines, and they're stacking both a the first version of that and the second version of that. We really don't have any good information on what the plan to test that is, but I would think by summer, they could be making some kind of hops or flights with the, with the booster, which will be you know, it'll look ridiculous because it's, it's huge, and, right? And is that officially Falcon Super Heavy? Is that what we're calling it? It's a BFR, right? Well, it's had many names um, over the years, BFR being one of them. Um, it, it, now it's just called Super Heavy. Just Super Heavy. Uh, and I think I think the overall system is called Starship or Starship Launch System, depending on the day. But they don't really have... I think Starship is the whole thing and it's the upper stage. And then when you're just talking about the rocket, it's Super Heavy. Starship Launch System is a great troll of the SLS, by the way. So, <laughs> you know, you know, they said that they actually said the, the the term Starship Launch System during the webcast for one of Starhopper's flights. So it is in use at SpaceX, but but and it is it is a giant troll of of, of Space Launch System, no doubt about it, and, and good for them. I think they still have a fighting chance to make an orbital launch this year. Um, I talked to Gwen Shotwell right at the end of last year and I asked her, do you think you're really going to do it this year? And she said, yeah, I'd bet on it. 
it's going to depend again, sort of on getting FAA permissions and, and building up their ground infrastructure as much as is the rocket. But they are probably within about 12 months of an orbital launch attempt for Starship. And, you know, by the end of next year, it would not surprise me if they've launched some Starlink satellites using Starship. A couple other things before we move on and talk about your book. Um, this is, it's probably going to age really badly, but right at the moment, there is a lot of discussion of who is going to be the next NASA administrator. And there are these rumors circulating that uh, Bill Nelson, who was a senator and a representative and one of two members of Congress to fly into space on the space shuttle, is being seriously considered to be the NASA administrator. And on one level on its face, you're like, okay, he's an old pal of Biden's from the Senate. Um, but the more you think about it, there are all of these red flags including Nelson criticizing Jim Bridenstine for being a politician and NASA shouldn't be run by politicians. Although I would argue that Bridenstine showed that having political savvy running NASA might actually be a good thing. And then there's all the criticism and you, you wrote an article about it. Um, so he, there's some suggestion from people that he's kind of in the bag for the SLS and big aerospace and it's really been down on commercial space. And, and that's right. You quoted in your article a space scientist who said it's, uh, it's as bad as Trump putting oil executives in charge of the EPA in terms of corruption. So, ouch. Um, yeah, I, I wrote an article this morning and I really didn't pull any punches. I basically said a politician who said politicians shouldn't run NASA wants to run NASA <laughs> because, because during the Bridenstein confirmation hearings, Nelson led the charge at the time he was the senior Senator from Florida. And he basically alleged Bridenstine was too partisan. You ought to have a technical person running NASA, not a politician. And now, you know, three years later, four years later, he's really pushing for himself to get this position. Two concerns I would have about him that I talked about in the article. One, you know, he 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 is an astronaut. He did go to space on the space shuttle. That's that's absolutely true in 1986. However, he basically strong-armed himself onto that mission as a politician. This was right before right. the Challenger accident. So they were starting to get some private people to fly on the space shuttle. And he was going to, you know, he was one of them, right? He actually strong, he actually pushed off a, a, a payload specialist from a private company. He, he was trying to do everything he could to get publicity for himself because he saw himself, I assume as a future Senator and maybe a future president. Um, and so he was you know, trying to get attention and you, you guys probably know this, but his crewmates, everyone has a, call sign or a nickname. Um, I don't think his official call sign was ballast, but they called him ballast in a derogatory <laughs> manner because that's what he was considered by his crewmates um, in flying on the shuttle. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, he was one of the original architects of the, the space launch system back in 2010. And what was really galling to the Obama White House is that he was a Democrat. And he basically fought against their plan. It's 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 ancient history now, but but their idea was, look, Constellation is a mess. Orion is behind schedule. Ares Five is not even being built yet. This plan is is never going to happen in terms of costs, and it's just out of control. And so they said, look, there's companies coming up like SpaceX um, that are pretty good at building rockets. Maybe we should let the commercial sector do launch vehicles. And, and Nelson essentially partnered with Richard Shelby and Kay Bailey Hutchison in the Senate. She was a senator from Texas and, and pushed back on this and sort of marshaled the, the opposition to the, the Obama plan. And we ended up with the, the space launch system. And it, and it wasn't just that with Nelson. He's changed his tune a little bit over the years, but back in those early days, he and Shelby basically worked together to gut funding for commercial crew and added that additional money into the space launch system for Alabama and ground systems in Florida. I mean, we're spending like $600 million a year for a decade to build up ground systems to launch the SLS rocket. Do you think we need to spend $5 billion on a launch site for this rocket? I mean, it's really an obscene amount of money. And it's just it's just sort of the goal there was to protect jobs. And it, it just it wasn't in the nation's space program interest. It was in sort of his political interest. It was this parochial interest. And so there's a concern and a valid one that hiring a 78 year old white man who who 
whose background is in sort of protecting political pork in the <laughs> space program. And it's very close to the, the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins that, that are sort of these legacy contractors is not healthy. You know, as Lori Garver, she was the deputy administrator for Obama for a few years for NASA. She said, now is not the time to turn back the clock at NASA. And I think that's right. I mean, he just, he would not be an inspiring leader at NASA. He would, you know, he would try to preserve the status quo and probably the status quo from five to 10 years ago, which really wasn't, the space agency wasn't in a healthy, healthy spot then. I thought it was interesting too that this this um, really came to the fore because of this uh, breaking defense account that said that this was a, a rumor that was going around. That even the rumor that's floating Bill Nelson in the tweet also floats Pam Melroy as his de- as his deputy, and that's almost like they know they that he doesn't really have the kind of credibility that you would want, and so they're like, but also uh, technical chops. They say from this astronaut who flew on three shuttle missions. But I mean, I'm the politician running NASA, I think is not a terrible idea because I think Bridenstine showed you could do it. You could be bipartisan as NASA administrator and that there's some advantage in having the, having the organization have somebody politically savvy because the money comes from Congress. And so having somebody, Bridenstine really, I think he exceeded all expectations in what he did. Uh, I'm not clear that, Nelson being NASA administrator would do the same thing, though. So I kind of agree with you on Bridenstine, um, that in the sense that politicians can be great administrators for NASA. And I would I would say though that it was pretty clear to me and and some other pretty savvy people before he was nominated when he was nominated that he would be pretty good because he had he had spent a lot of time in the space community talking to people like Paul Spudis, who's very intelligent engineer sort of involved in lunar exploration. And, and Bridenstine had written some things about his plan for space. He had, he had had a bill actually called the Space Renaissance Act that, you know, kind of sought to address some of the issues facing NASA and the U.S. space industry. And it was, was really pretty, pretty thoughtful. I don't see much, I, I don't see much evidence that Nelson would bring the same, same kind of chops. I think it's, <laughs> he's seeking to remain relevant um, in, in space. And he's clearly, his interest in space is clearly genuine. Don't want to downplay that. And he clearly has a lot of experience, but you know, if you're looking for a dynamic leader, which I think NASA needs, it's probably not him. And all the talk about, you mentioned he's, he's an old white guy and like, oh, white guys are fine. The president's an old white guy, but there's all this talk about an opportunity for NASA to have its first woman administrator, for example. And it does, it just feels kind of old and backward and not just because of his age, but just, it's like, he's a figure from uh, really a space figure from the eighties, a former Senator and, and uh, a representative of a lot of these kind of programs that are the old kind of old NASA that's been proven in the last decade to be kind of painful and expensive and not uh, very successful. So I guess we'll find out. I think it's really interesting that this got floated and that there's pushback because that suggests to me that this is not a, a, a done deal and that maybe there's an opportunity to kind of uh, show that this would not be welcomed. And, and maybe that's why it leaked. I don't know. At, at the risk of at the risk of this being really dated when the podcast comes out, I would just say you're, you're, you're right on. My understanding of this is that it was basically leaked by someone who wanted the decision makers in the White House and at the President's Council on Science and Technology, PCAST, to understand that the space community would not be happy mm. with this kind of an appointment. And so over the last 24 hours, I think it's, it's had its desired effect. You know, the, the telling thing will be if, if by the end of this week, um, so by the end of February, you know, he's still very much in the mix and, and sort of the front runner for this position, then, then this, this effort will have failed. Uh, we like to do a thing here uh, <laughs> called the SLS segment. Excellent. Which stands for Space Launch System Segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia, because everything's got to have an acronym. Sometimes Jason sings it. He's behaving today because you're here. I, I do. I do. Well, the, yeah, I am. The SLS segment. Well, I just, uh, for all the reasons you already listed, like, I'm interested in the SLS. And also, we, you know, it, it's it's kind of a, we, we did a whole episode where we talked about, like, why it exists and the fact that there are, you know, suppliers conveniently located in every single congressional district and all those things, like the politics of it and Shelby funding it and all of that. 
uh, goes in there. But it, it's still happening mm-hmm. for now, although the green run uh, just got delayed a little bit more. So, um, you know, they're they're <laughs> Can we talk they, about they, the green run? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So first of all, do you realize that this rocket has now been on a test stand in Mississippi for more than 13 months? Now, originally, they were talking about doing the hot fire test in August. And then there were all these hurricanes, and it was a pretty lousy summer for tropical weather. But, you know, other people operating at Stennis lost weeks, not months. Um, then there were some technical issues, specifically with a pre-valve um, in the propulsion system on one of the one of the eight pre-valves or something like that. And so it got delayed from November and then to December. And then it, the, the first test finally did take place in January, and it ran for 67.1 seconds, um, far short of what they wanted. And so they've recycled, and then now they were targeting um, a test this week on February 25th. And then just yesterday, I heard someone told me that that it was going to del- be delayed at least a week. And as as it's one of the frustrating things the NASA PR office does is, so I get a tip on this yesterday and I go to the communications person. I say, hey, can you confirm this? And a couple hours later, a NASA blog appears on it. Uh, <laughs> and I'm about to just start reporting, just about to start reporting rumors, but they confirmed that there was another pre-valve issue. These are sticky valves basically, and they've had lots of problems with them. And so it's Perhaps not surprising that that's caused the latest delay, but I suspect this will delay the test for at least another week or two. You know, last time there was the pre-valve issue, the delay was six weeks. So who knows? I, I can tell you this. You know, they had a they had a news conference last week talking about the launch date, and Tom Whitmire, who's kind of the, one of the senior exploration officials for NASA in Washington D.C., said, you know, they still had a target date of October of this year for the launch. Now that assumed that absolutely nothing went wrong for anything here, whether in Florida, stacking, moving, you know, which is unrealistic. The more realistic target before the latest delay was February of 2022. So, you know, we'll see. Maybe next summer this this ultimately launches. I don't know. It's it's I've followed it for more than a decade now. And it's on one hand, it's a compelling story because almost nobody likes it. So it's a pretty easy target to write about. On the other hand, it's also just this classic monumental government program. Yeah, I, I know on the, was it January 16th, that that burn that, that cut off, like you said. Uh, I think you were there, actually, and it looked very cold. So I'm glad you're, you survived that. Um, but there was talk after that of like, what is the second run gonna look like? And it seems like they don't have to do the full eight minutes to get the data they need, but a lot of people are pushing them to do the full run. Do you have any insight on uh, what their plan is? And if there was thinking about skipping a second uh, hot fire test or doing a shorter one, maybe why that changed? You know, I was shocked that a couple of days after the test, they were still talking about the possibility of skipping the hot fire test because I had seen the internal recommendation from NASA and it was to do a second test. So I I never really thought they would skip it. You ask a great question about what's a successful second test. Um, I interviewed Steve Jerzyk last week. He's the acting administrator for NASA. And I said, Steve, what's the, you know, what's the, how, how long does it have to run for you to say, okay, it's ready to go for launch. And he said 350 seconds plus or minus. Um, so that's about six minutes. Then they had a news conference Friday morning with the program manager for NASA and for Boeing and some other people, Tom Whitmire, who I referenced, was on that call. And they said four minutes for a successful test. And then so the question was, well, what happens if you run it for less than four minutes again? Um, And they said, well, we'd probably have to do a third hot fire test. Um, depending upon our risk analysis of, you know, damage to the core stage and that kind of thing from so many tests. So, you know, we'll see. I suspect this will now take place sometime in March. Again, I'm going to do a little crystal ball here because I'm curious what you think. Like, we don't really know. Obviously, so much money has been put into this. I always uh, say that the sunk cost fallacy is what's going to launch the SLS eventually. Is that like we spent so much money on it? How could we not launch it? But I know that they've done they've done contracts out, you know, for like a dozen of these or ten of these or like there's so much money and promise invested in this, and yet it feels like not only does it already feel like yesterday's launch system, but it feels like 
almost certainly in the next decade, it will be surpassed for vastly cheaper. So, you know, it, what do you think is the most likely scenario for the SLS? It's going to launch two or three times and then never again? Or are they going to have to buy those 10 SLSs? I'm sure they can unwind those contracts to some extent. So I wouldn't fixate too much on that. I think that was just sort of throwing a bone to the contractors and the politicians who supported them at a time when they were also giving money to SpaceX um, for other programs. Uh, my sense is that once Starship launches into orbit, probably before SLS, but maybe not, that really accelerates the momentum to kill the program. And then certainly once Starship lands on the moon, you know, it's dead. Um, it's just Starship is better in so many ways, cost, reuse, flight rate, you know, it's just for a host of reasons, it's, it's, it's a vastly superior rocket. I mean, you have to build, you have to go through two upgrades of SLS. So that's another 10 to 12 years and $20 billion in development money to get to the 130 metric tons launch space launch system rocket that rivals the payload capacity of Starship. I mean, it's, it's, it's just mind boggling. Um, Shelby, Senator Shelby is retiring at the end of next year. Right. Um, that's a big domino to fall. It's going to depend on a couple of things. Is one is is how well does Starship execute? Number two, do they actually get to the launch pad sometime next year? And then in that case, I think it launches at least once. But you know, if they launch in 2022, they're not launching that rocket again until 2024. It's just it's not going to move that fast. So I I would I would put the over under on SLS launches at 1.5 right now. I think the issue with with Starship is they they're going to need to get it human rated, but I know that it's ultimately their intent to do that so that they can take passengers. And you don't really need to get it human rated because, I mean, okay, you do, but not for launch because you could always launch Orion on a Falcon Heavy or Crew Dragon on a Falcon Heavy and have them rendezvous in orbit while Starship's right. getting refueled and and go from there. And, and I think, by the way, I think humans launching on Starship is a long ways away. They're focused entirely on sort of making the second stage fully reusable, which is an enormous technical challenge. Um, I mean, the things, they make it look fairly easy with their tests, but my God, the engineering that goes into that vehicle is extraordinary and extraordinarily difficult to, to make something that big come back from space at an orbital velocity. I mean, it's just, it's pretty wild. So you get humans up there with something else. Yeah. And you get the heavy stuff up there with Starship, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much. Yeah. Well, speaking of SpaceX, we should talk about the beginning. We're going to wind this back. I, I I get some of the vibes from your book while watching the Starship stuff because it's like, oh, here's SpaceX. They're back. They're back, starting up with a with a, a vehicle and and dealing with all of those you know messy things that will happen when you're when you're rapidly iterating on a vehicle. Your your book is about, which is Liftoff, and it does have a subtitle, Elon Musk in the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. It's such a great story about something that I, it's an aspect of SpaceX I knew almost nothing about, because it really is about the Falcon 1, about getting the company off the ground, trying to get a rocket into orbit so that they could prove to people that they could they could take payloads to orbit and they could stay in business. And it's it's a great story. I really do recommend that everybody uh, buy the book. It, it, it's so well told and it's such a wild ride. And unless you are really deep into SpaceX, you probably don't know quite everything that they went through uh, and, and how close they came to death, basically. Yeah, none of none of the people, or almost none of the people involved in the book, including Elon and um, the the other founding employees, have ever talked at any kind of length about those early years and what they had to go through to get to orbit. So I, th I think it's really kind of an unprecedented look at that that time frame. But you know, when when I started the project, my goal was to really understand why is SpaceX the way they are. You know, why have they been able to literally transform the global launch industry? over the last five to 10 years. And to, to understand that, you really got to go back to the beginning and see the DNA that was put into the company from the beginning. And it, and it does come from Elon Musk. You know, his very first hires when he interviewed them, 
he must have sounded like a crazy person because he was talking about sending humans to Mars. But, you know, that has been his consistent goal for 19 years now, and he's never really moved off of that. And so it was the goal, and then it was hiring brilliant people and then pushing them as hard as they would be willing to be pushed and then pushing them further. Um, you know, he, you, people talk and joke about the, the really difficult work schedule, lack of, you know, work-life balance at SpaceX today. You know, <laughs> back at the beginning, man, you know, they were working 80-hour weeks. They were sleeping under their desks. They were catching a few hours of sleep um, on the factory floor because there were just dozens of people building those first few rockets and then taking them out to the tropical island in the Kwajalein Atoll and trying to launch them. I mean, it was literally everyone was wearing multiple hats and just working their tails off to get things done. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about the the tropical island. I don't want to call it a paradise because oh, I'm man. sure it didn't feel that way uh, working at it. But they started at, at Vandenberg and, and had some issues that weren't able to fly from there. Uh, and they find this oh. little chunk of land out in the middle of the ocean that they're allowed to go out and, and build a launch pad. And a, a lot of the, uh, the stories that you tell in the book are are about sort of the the infrastructure they had to put in to make these early launches possible and how a lot of that was being put together by people who a lot of them were straight out of school. You know, a lot of them were young. Uh, some, some later on were, did have expertise and had experience in other aerospace companies. But I get the sense from the book that a lot of this work was being done by people who were doing it for the first time themselves. Right. So so Elon hired some his original vice presidents, um, Chris Thompson, um, Tom Muller, and Hans Koenigsmann all had some professional experience um, in the industry. But then after that, the engineers they hired by and large were just out of college or had one or two years, you know, or were in grad school um, at the time. Now the technicians that they hired to help work on the rocket, often those came from those, they, those were more experienced people typically, but the engineers were mostly kids. Um, and, and that's still the case today. Like about a year ago, I got to walk around Boca Chica when they were just starting to really scale it up in February. And, you know, there were hundreds of like kids, like, 20 something mostly, you know, running around trying to do stuff. And it was wild to sit in on some of the meet planning meetings back at the factory in, in California for Starship and Raptor and Starlink. And there might've been like one or two guys or girls in their thirties or forties, but by and large, and this is like, this is in Elon's Musk's executive conference room in the middle of the factory. And these are like his senior leadership meetings on his, the key programs at SpaceX, Starship, the Rocket Engine, Dragon, Starlink. And man, sitting around that table, it was mostly kids, like in their <laughs> 20s. And so, yeah, that's that's just how he rolls. I mean, Apollo Mission Control was mostly people that, like were 23, 24. So, I mean, that that's there's a lot of history there yeah. of it being uh, really young people um, who don't know who don't know what is impossible and therefore can think about things differently. Um, and, think, and think about this too. I mean, their original plan was to launch from Vandenberg and that's yeah. only a couple of hours drive from their factory. It launched into polar orbits, which they thought they were going to serve mostly polar customers. Um, and so it was perfect. Um, so and I, this is one of my favorite places. I was telling the story to my wife after I read the book. It was because we think about commercial space today and we're like, oh, commercial space. Yeah, that's reasonable. We got SpaceX and there's other other companies doing interesting stuff there. But like I get the distinct impression from your book that the Air Force was fine with them coming out to Vandenberg and paying them some money to do some stuff out there and that they didn't take them seriously and there was no way they were going to do anything. And they did a hot fire test and the Air Force was like, oh, no, they might actually do something. You guys can't launch. You're going to break all of the other rockets that are going to launch. And this is what ends up sending them off to the remote tropical island is that it's like the Air Force. What I walked away from that story thinking was the Air Force didn't think they it was going to be a rich guy spending money and it wasn't going to amount to anything. And then there was that moment where it appeared, oh, they actually are trying this. And that's when the clamps came down and they're like, no, absolutely not. You're not going to launch from here. Yeah, that's why I tell a little bit about the story of Amrock, which was a predecessor company founded by a stunt director from the 
from Hollywood. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, you know, they got driven out to Kwajalein for, for several reasons. And one was like, they, the Air Force was like, you can't launch from here when we've got national security missions sitting out on the launch pad and Lockheed and Boeing were like, no, we've got our Atlas and Delta rockets, you know, get, get the hell out of here. Um, and so Elon was faced with a really difficult decision because his tools were typically to sue, right. Or to protest. Um, and, and he had those options in that case, but if he'd sued, it would have been months and months and months. And, you know, even in 2006, when they were building up to their first launch, actually, this was mid 2005, um, when they were building up their first launch, you know, they did not have any kind of an infinite amount of money. So like every month they weren't launching, they were losing money. And so they, they decided, well, we're going to go halfway around the world. So to get to Quaj, basically you fly to Hawaii from LA and then you fly the same distance further into the Pacific. And they got, you know, it was this small Island, <clears throat> you know, several city blocks, in size, uh, Amalek, and they had to build the whole launch infrastructure there. And the crazy thing was the logistics of it all, because you had to bring your locks, you know, from California, you had to ship everything you needed for a launch site in the middle of nowhere. And so, yeah, a lot of the book is kind of about the craziness of being on Kwajalein and, and Amalek and, and sort of trying to survive in that environment. You tell the story about how they had a, a hangar quote unquote hangar at one point that was kind of like a tent or something and it falls over and the rockets get corroded by the salt spray from the ocean and it's just and people you know ultimately people are sleeping there overnight they're eventually like a trailer or like a double wide but just it's such a great story that to, to get over there on the boat from quaj or if you're really desperate bring a helicopter over and like it is if you bring your own everything to that, it's such a great story because it's like they're trying to do something different. This is a very high degree of difficulty, I guess. I know the army, it's the part of the missile test range and there was a little bit of help there, but basically they had to invent their entire launch infrastructure out in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean. It's it's just, it's amazing that they even got their first launch attempted, let alone ultimately got a, a rocket into space. Yeah, it's 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 incredible they were able to launch from there, and that's it's also incredible they survived three failures, you know, and had everything on the line with the fourth flight, and had all the difficulties in the weeks preceding that, and and made it to made it to orbit. I mean, for me, sort of this this eight week period between flight three and four, the Falcon One rocket, was really kind of this magical period where you talk about the DNA of the company becoming hardened. And, and sort of setting SpaceX ultimately on the path to success that it's now achieved. It really came down to those, those eight weeks prior to Flight 4 when they did all this crazy stuff to make that launch happen. And I, and I really tried to, to tell that, write those couple of chapters in a kind of a cinematic way because I just thought it was so wild what you know Zach Dunn and Tim Buzza and Flo Lee and some of those people went through to make all that happen. So you interviewed Elon Musk on his plane. Um, and in seeing these stories about Elon Musk in your book and elsewhere, uh, obviously covering Apple, I'm reminded of Steve Jobs stories a little bit. There's some, there's some resonance there. Um, and obviously his approach works for some people and it doesn't work for other people. And there's a certain kind of person who's really motivated by uh, by somebody like Elon Musk. And and obviously I mentioned like the Apollo days at NASA. There's definitely this thing where some people burn burn out eventually, but they're uh, you, you find a bunch of people in their 20s who are super committed and 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 they can do great things. Do you feel that same uh, vibe with Starship? Is, is is this you know that same kind of uh, secret formula of 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 Elon Musk and SpaceX success going again when they're building Starship? Oh, most definitely. I mean, they are trying to do something again that no private company has ever done. Really, no one in the world now. That there there's there are lots of parallels between the Falcon One and Starship because you know in Kwajalein and Omelak. There was some oversight from the army, but one of the reasons they went there is they had free reign to do what almost whatever the hell they wanted to do on Omelek in terms of assembling their rocket and, and launching it. There was very little oversight. And one of the reasons they took the Starship program to Boca Chica, again, is Texas is not does not really regulate businesses a whole lot. And so during both the Falcon 1 days and Starship now, they're able to move 
as fast as they can possibly go. And so, you know, you're seeing with Starship where they're trying to launch so frequently is, is a company trying to move as fast as Elon wants them to move. And he is always pushing his people to go faster. The big difference between now and the Falcon 1 days is, is, is they just have more resources, right? SpaceX has big contracts with NASA, with DOD. Um, Elon is now one of the most wealthy people in the world. Uh, they can He can drop private capital fundraising rounds basically whenever he wants because SpaceX has been successful and he's seen as having a Midas touch with SpaceX and Tesla. And so they can build six starships at a time, which is bonkers. You know, the, the, the scale of that vehicle is, is not dissimilar to the core stage of the SLS rocket, which, by the way, when I visited Michoud in 2014, they were already building barrels for the vehicle that's now seven years later on a test stand in Mississippi. SpaceX is going to build a Starship in a couple of weeks and then wheel it out to the launch site a couple of weeks later, and it, it lives or it dies. Now, they can do that because these are not flight vehicles. Like NASA is being super protective of, of SLS because if they lose this one, they're toast, right? Mm-hmm. But, but SpaceX is like, it's, it, it's, I talk about sort of this iterative design approach in the book, and they used it for Falcon 1, they're using it for Starship, and it allows them to go fast, blow things up, learn from those mistakes, and, and move on. So they'll get there now because they've, they're good at building rockets, right? Is anyone better? And they've got all kinds of resources. So it's, it's really hard what they're trying to do, but I suspect they'll succeed. One thing you mentioned in the book is um, how they did end up First off, they sued. Uh, they got reconsidered for contracts. They did end up with some NASA money for commercial cargo, I think. And um, and that was one of the lifelines they got. And if I look at, at the last decade of space, and, and a lot of this is informed by what you've written, I think it's really interesting. Some people will say, well, you know, commercial space is not really that different from... Uh, the military industrial complex, you know, of aerospace contractors who get money from NASA to build them their rocket. But if you look at what SpaceX has done, clearly it is different. And it's not that NASA money and government money and military money isn't going to SpaceX and help funding what they're doing, but it's it's a in a different way, right? It, it's more hands-off. It's like, here's some seed money or here's a contract. Um, go do your thing, as opposed to what we see with SLS, which is uh, this very different and seemingly dysfunctional relationship where a lot of money gets spent and not a lot happens. So, you know, how, how, how is the relationship between NASA and SpaceX? Obviously, NASA kept them alive and is a, is a really good customer. I'll say a couple of things to that. First of all, the difference between old space and new space, which you were talking about there earlier, is pretty simple for me. Old space works like NASA says, we want to build this widget to do this. And so you give us your best bid and we'll select one contractor to build it. And company A that wins doesn't really do any research or work on its own until the proposal is out there. Then they'll do some research, respond to the proposal. And then if they win, they'll build it. SpaceX and other companies as well are the new space approach is we're going to build something that we think the world needs and then we'll see what happens. So they did it with the Falcon 1. They built the Falcon 1 to their needs and their desires because there was no government paying for it. Like the Atlas V rocket, the government paid Lockheed to develop that. Same with the Delta rockets. Those rockets were not, you know, and the and Vulcan, the Vulcan rocket ULA, by the way, the DOD paid for that as well in whole, entirely. ULA hmm. has not spent a penny or has not spent much money on development of the Vulcan rocket. Um, and so so new space builds thing. And that's what Starship is. It's, it's, it's being built because Elon thinks that this is the way to get humans to Mars. And he thinks that, that oh, by the way, it will also serve all kinds of needs for customers outside of SpaceX's own needs for Mars, NASA, DOD, commercial satellites, you know, yada, yada, yada. So you asked about how's the relationship between NASA and SpaceX. NASA, there's no question, saved SpaceX's bacon twice in 2006 and 2008. And that proved to be a smart bet because today, SpaceX is inarguably NASA's most important contractor. And it's really pretty remarkable transformation how that, how SpaceX has usurped Boeing in that role. But, you know, it's, it's, they now get the most cargo to the space station. The only company that can get people to the space station probably will remain so for at least the next year, year and a half. 
They're going to they now launch a majority or, or in the coming years, they'll launch a majority of the science missions for NASA. They're playing a key role in the Artemis program, both in terms of delivering the Lunar Gateway, delivering cargo to the Gateway, and potentially being the primary contractor for the human landing system. And so, you know, it, they have a good relationship. Is it uneasy? Yes, because in some ways, SpaceX is directly competing with NASA. One, one of the things that I reported in that Bill Nelson story this morning was back in, I forget the year, I think it was maybe 2012 or something around there, when Elon first talked about building the Falcon Heavy rocket. Nelson went to the NASA officials and said, you know, keep your boy, your boys in quotes, in line. <laughs> like, basically, he can't do this because if, if he builds this reusable rocket that can launch almost as much as the SLS Block 1 and do it for $100 million, we're going to look like complete idiots. And oh, by the way, you know, that rocket launched in 2017, the Falcon, excuse me, the Falcon Heavy launched in 2018. And three years later, you know, we're still waiting for um, SLS to come along. And so, I mean, in launch, the reality is that SpaceX does make NASA look pretty bad. Um, but they, they have a great relationship on a lot of other areas because NASA has a lot of knowledge and they have the funding and SpaceX has a culture that gets things done. And what NASA needs more than anything is to accomplish things. Um, stop talking about an exploration program to go to the moon or, or build a gateway, just do it. Right. And SpaceX helps them do it. Right. And the money that they're investing, investing in SpaceX, obviously it has paid off. Right. And, and it's good for SpaceX, but it is good for NASA. Ultimately it's uh it's going to be interesting, an interesting decade. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you, if just one more thing on this, if you had bet back in 2014, NASA gave contracts to Boeing and SpaceX to build crew transport systems under commercial crew to the International Space Station. And, and Boeing got about 4.2 billion, I think, and NASA got about 2.6 billion. So quite a bit more for Boeing. Back then, if you had done a survey of the space industry, knowledgeable people, a vast majority of them would have said Boeing will deliver, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they're steady. They have experience in the domain. SpaceX makes wild promises and, and doesn't deliver. And, and lo and behold, you know, in, in 2020, SpaceX May of 2020, you know, almost a year ago now, launched humans, the International Space Station, for 50% less than what Boeing charged. And Boeing is going to be probably... I would say at least 18 to 24 months behind in terms of flying humans for the first time. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 144. That top link is Eric's book. Uh, really, y'all go check it out. I think everyone would really enjoy it. You can remember the name. It's easy to remember the name. It's right? really easy to remember the name. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, Jason is there as Jasonell. You can follow me there as ISMH. Again, a big thank you to Eric for joining us. And Jason, until our next episode, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, y'all. <laughs>